electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, unstoppable Apple. The stock closing in now on $2 trillion in market cap, even as the controversy over the company's app store intensifies. Is the stock's record run enough to keep the tech trade powering on? We'll debate that with our investment committee today. And joining me for the hour are Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, Pete Nigerian, Bryn Talkington is managing partner at Requisite Capital Management. Let's take a look at stocks once again, approaching new record highs. There you go. 33.86 is the number to watch. We're at 33.84 and a half. We'll keep watching that as we are Apple moving ever closer to a new milestone of its own. Two trillion dollars in market cap. Pete, I begin with you. 467.77 is the number to watch there. We got to 464, so we're right on the doorstep. And, Pete, it seems no matter what you throw at Apple, the stock just continues to go higher. Well, and I think it comes down to the fundamental story, Scott. And We talk about the fundamental story all the time, but the reality is they absolutely crushed it again in Q2. When you look at the revenues and you look at the earnings and the beats that they made there, the double-digit beats that they made across there percentage-wise, it's just extraordinary. And then when you start to look at the iPhone and everybody says, well, at one point in time, will the iPhone be, not be, be an issue for them, an Achilles heel for them? That's not really the case because the other side of it was, how about when they came out with the less expensive 399, the, the SE model? That was another genius move to get themselves more folks out there that are going to move away. And this is exactly what Tim Cook talked about, moving away from Android and over to Apple. And that was a huge contributor to that. But then It's not just the services. You look over at the wearables, you combine those two, and you're not too far away. Just those two entities, you put those together, they're close to $20 billion, and the iPhone brought in $26 billion. So I think when you look at this from a fundamental perspective right now, Scott, you're looking at a company that's clicking on all cylinders, and you still got 5G out there. You still got the split out there. There's all kinds of different elements to this whole trade that tells me this stock definitely can get up and through that $2 trillion level. Even though, you know, um, Bryn, Pete lays out a bunch of reasons why the stock continues to rise, though you sold it a, a while ago, and there is a conversation in the market around some of these high flyers as to whether it's time to lighten up, though maybe it's hard to do that because of the catalyst that Pete just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I think I sold it 100 points ago, which is a little bit painful. But, you know, investing's hard and you have a reason why you buy and a reason why you sell. And I think, you know, with Apple, the narrative for the past couple of years is that if you actually look at the revenues going back to 2015, the revenues have grown cumulatively about 17 percent. And so I think that's where ultimately people who thought, you know, well, maybe Apple's had a big enough move. Um, well, boy, were we wrong because the multiple expansion in 2019 has only been trumped by 2020. And I think that this is a perfect example of, you know, fundamentally, 
Its revenues still aren't growing that much, but the market's in love with this stock, and it's really hard to step to the side of sentiment. And so I think as long as we're in this new normal where, you know, these, these big tech companies have pristine balance sheets, they are growing. Apple had really good growth in Europe as well, about 20% this last quarter. The stock probably continues to go higher, but probably underperforms, we'll say, some of the other names if you do start getting some of the value names come back. But definitely I was wrong, and uh, congratulations for all those who, who held Apple through, you know, through the year. Yeah, but, but, but Jim, many of, many of the points that Bryn makes are not wrong, that there are, you know, you could find some, some fundamental issues to to question with with apple growth i mean it's not like everybody on on the street is a raging bull uh, on apple it's just that momentum has carried it and run over any of the critics any of the naysayers any of the non-believers it just continues to run them over <laughs> yeah so i'm thinking about the momentum that's the word you just used and i'm thinking about where it's coming from in part it's coming from the company itself I think you pointed out 467 is the number for it to reach 2 trillion. Uh, but remember, that's based on a share count as of June 30th. Uh, a month and a half into this quarter, they've certainly been buying back shares, and their share count is lower. We know they generate a ton of cash flow. We know they buy back shares. So frankly, some of that momentum is fundamentally deserved by the amount of cash that the company generates and that it recycles into reducing share count. Um, however, saying that, you know, there are risks. And you mentioned, uh, or I think you alluded to, some of the antitrust issues that are out there. I tend to think that that is not going to come to pass. Uh, for one thing, I mean, everybody is in the crosshairs of the regulators. And if everybody's in the crosshairs, then nobody is. But the other thing is, look at Qualcomm. I mean, that's a comparable. You go back 20 years, people said it's anti-competitive and has for 20 years. And yet they still keep winning court cases. They just won one two weeks ago. I don't think there's any legal uh, liability that can be pinned on Apple. They're just being competitive. I don't know. But what, ha what happens, though, if there are changes to the App Store um, structure? and the amount of money that Apple could be bad. takes. I mean, does that have a yeah, real, that a does that have a real impact on, on where the stock could go? However, um, you may think this, this unfolds, whether it even gets to a, a courtroom or not. So with the qualifier that you just said of, you know, how far it actually goes, of course it could be negative. If the government actually starts to score points on Apple, that, that would be bad, but frankly, it would be bad for the whole tech sector. I mean, so far, the government really hasn't scored any points on the big giants. They almost knocked out Qualcomm a couple of years ago with that FTC trial. That got overturned on appeals. Right now, um, you know, r right now, the government's punching at air, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Joe, so we're approaching this $2 trillion in market cap. I is there any reason to use that as a, a, a lighten-up sim uh, symbol, if, if you get to that level? I mean, look, I, I get the reasons why the stock's going up. Now, I don't know if once the split goes through, if, if people use that as a reason to sell. If, if anything, there seems conventional wisdom is it's a reason for the stock just to continue to, to go up, <laughs> rightly or wrongly. What do you use the milestone for, if anything, if you're an investor? I think you use the milestone for the same thing that you used a trillion dollars, and that's breaking through the ceiling, Scott. And that's exactly what you're going to be doing at $2 trillion. And there'll be others in the growth space that will join Apple above $2 trillion. So I don't think there's any reason to sell there. Um, all the reasons that have been identified so far are very strong reasons to stay with ownership of Apple. Uh, on Jimmy's point, I would point out, I had a conversation with Andrew Ross Sarkin about a year ago regarding Apple's ability to bundle its subscriptions 
And I think ultimately you're beginning to see the signs of that, and that's going to remove some of the risks surrounding its services business. And I think ultimately it will significantly increase the momentum that they have been able to uh, exhibit in services over the last couple of years. Um, and lastly, as it relates to the stock split, that is absolutely a good thing for investors um, and specifically small investors that don't own their stock. Keep in mind, small investors, they're basically maintaining a capital size in their portfolio of somewhere around, let's say, $10,000. You don't own Apple and you've got a $10,000 account and the stock is $400. You buy Apple, that's now 4% of your portfolio. You split the stock. And there's a diversification advantage to that where it's only 1%. And I think that's where uh, there's very strong support for what Apple is doing once again as they've split the stock so many times previously. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you look at what Apple's doing today. You look at what tech is doing more broadly today. The Nasdaq's outperforming. It's almost been like a statement the Nasdaq is making in some of these tech stocks is not so fast. Right? Everybody's lining up now, coming out of the woodwork, trying to write off tech as if it's going to be a value-driven catalyst for the next leg higher for stocks, where tech is just saying, no, 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 not so fast. Yeah, that's, I, think that's, I think that's not accurate. I think that when you look at value, I think that financials, you know, which are a big part of the value, energy as well, but I think financials are going to have headwinds. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the 30-year moved up pretty significantly the last couple of weeks, but as soon as it moves back down, and it's very low anyway, and so I think financials, you know, could get a pop and you could trade those, but they're going to struggle over the next few years. And so I just think it's short-sighted to say that, you know, tech is over and you should go overweight value because value can be a value trap. And you see a lot of these names that really peaked in the first week of June have done terrible since then. And so I think definitely to lean into some of the value names makes sense, but to do a wholesale rotation, I think that's going to have a, a huge underperformance over the next few years and have really bad consequences. Pete, even like, you know, Katie Stockton this morning on Squawk Box, our conversation with her, she was telling Joe that, you know, technically it's, it's lining up to, to, to not be a believer uh, again in the value trade. And you have, you have more notes, though, out to like, Tom Lee was on with us on Friday as he raises his S&P target and says that value is going to be in part what gets you there. You have other notes out this morning talking about that too. MKM, re, they say recalibrate and shift away from technology. Everybody, it seems, wants to make the call. The question is, are they going to have egg on their face after they make it? Yeah, uh, well, I got to tell you something. I don't understand why, and we already know some of this, Scott, but we, we already know that there's uh, multiple trillions of dollars that have been sitting on the sidelines, right? So. I think it was a really sharp move uh, just last week. One of the traders was talking about something, and it made so much sense to me that I don't even know necessarily that it's got to be a rotation, Scott, as it is just allocation. Allocation from those that have had that money on the sidelines into some of those areas where they feel a little bit more comfortable because of this big tech move to the upside. So why can't it be a, a market where tech continues to move to the upside and we see value participate? So. You know, I, I look at this all, every single day and, and I hear all the commentary about how tech's not going to be able to do it. And then you hear everything about all the different reasons why. And then tech continues to take the helm and continues to move to the upside. And I think for a lot of the right reasons, so many of these names are not overpriced. So many of these names fundamentally, yes, they might be trading at a little bit higher P.E. than they were. But in many cases, they've got the growth to prove it out. So I do think that there's a lot of different names out there right now on the tech side that still have 
have plenty of room to the upside, Apple obviously being one of them. But I think that because of that, it, why can't both work at the same time? That's the one part that puzzles me is everybody seems to want to think that everything has to shift. I don't know that it has to shift. Well, I, I think why that would money it, that's on the sidelines. Why, why would, do, why, I mean, we, all, we know why value, uh, I mean, we know by, why growth has been, been working, but why would they work at the same time? What, what in the environment out there suggests that there is staying power for value stocks, that, that the financials and industrials and that? materials and energy and some of these other things can, can even do well? Okay, so they've had a nice little run. They've had nice little runs before. Hey, Scott, it's Jim. Um, and that's look, I think the only the only answer to that is that there's got to be M&A activity. And I said this on Friday when Tom Lee was on, but it's really it's the only thing that can change the narrative from these value rotations being absolute head fakes is you need to see real money coming in and you're only seeing a taste of it. You haven't seen a full flood. You've seen a little bit in terms of the energy space, things like Chevron Texaco buying Noble in financials in terms of, you know, Warren Buffett buying G, uh, Bank of America, but then he's lightening up on JP Morgan and everything else. The only thing I think that can really get the wind in the sales of value is a meaningful flow of private money into these into these. But names. Maybe that's not going to happen. It's going to get investor my, sentiment. My, my point is, is maybe, Pete, it's not going to happen until you get mm -hmm. a vaccine. Look, the, the market we know looks forward. OK, word of a vaccine doesn't mean we have a vaccine. Right. It's going to take six months. Maybe it takes nine months. Maybe it takes longer than that to vaccinate everybody who wants to be vaccinated. So there's your look ahead. Why would you plow money into epicenter stocks or reopen stocks until you get the announcement that a vaccine is here and one has been approved? And I, and I don't disagree with you, Scott. I just think that there are folks out there that have watched this tech run and they're not necessarily comfortable about it. So with the allocation of money that's coming back into the markets, they're probably a little bit more comfortable with the idea that at some point in time, and, and I like what you put out there. I think those time frames make a lot of sense. It's probably not right around the corner. It could be three months out. It could be even longer out. So now would be the time that you might be wanting to position because, you know, we talked about this just last week. We were talking about you do want to approach things oftentimes when there's blood in the streets if there is a potential catalyst. I do think the catalyst is exactly what you just said, a vaccine any kind of drug that's going to be something that we can actually look to to make this uh make ourselves be able to come out of this pandemic and feel a little bit more comfortable about travel and about restaurants and about all the different bars everything that we talk about each and every day on here so if there is something out there like that maybe now isn't such a terrible time to be looking because a lot of those yeah there's been some head fakes but i think there has been opportunities you just have to be patient because don't think this is happening tomorrow next week or in the next couple of weeks this is something that's likely months out maybe a half a year or even more out but positioning now doesn't it's not the fool's way to do it i think it's actually the right way to do it if you're picking and selecting the right companies that have the balance sheets they've got the fundamentals and they just haven't had the buyers coming in so well, maybe sometimes i think it's okay to be one of the early buyers in those kinds of names positioning has been cautious right i mean you're you're coming into what yes. had been, I mean, August is one of the worst months of the year, right? So we, we come in there, we, we hear, you know, all these historical facts and figures say it's going to be a, a rough month, but then you get, you know, this pickup in value stocks and cyclical stocks. You've got NVIDIA reporting this week from the growth side, the stock's running up into the number. Kramer was talking about, you know, looking ahead at NVIDIA, some of the groups that are working in the market right now, 
and what he calls a grand slam for the markets. Let's listen to Kramer. We can talk about it on the other side. August was supposed to be so bad. Um, we're going to get an inkling when we uh, see NVIDIA this week, which is a stock that's been on fire and we get the retailers. But I think we could have a kind of a grand slam of retail being positive. You know, we've got industrial being positive, semiconductors being positive and healthcare being positive. It's a grand slam. All right, Joe, what do you think about that? I think I'm positioned for it. And uh, hopefully Jim is correct on that. I think, Scott, a lot of what happened last week was that money came out of the high yield market. Money came out of high yield and went into value. And if you look at the performance last week for value, yes, value was slightly higher last week by a little more than a percent for S&P value. But S&P growth was basically unchanged on the week. So there was not this great rotation as it was being pontificated out of growth into value you have to maintain those growth positions. They are the economy right now. And because of the uptick that we experienced in interest rates, that's where the money came from. It came from high yield, and you saw investors searching for some form of opportunity, and they found that opportunity selectively in value on the belief that there were better economic numbers and that potentially there's a better outcome so as that relates to, the, did to you, uh, the vaccine. But it's not at the expense of growth. Did you say at the, at the beginning of, of your answer here when I asked you what you thought about, Jim, that you are, you're positioned for it, for what Kramer calls a, a grand slam? Is that what you said? And if so, yes, what does that mean? Uh, uh, what, what does the positioning well, look like position, for people who uh, are watching and listening? So as it relates specifically to me, Scott, I'll throw the number out. You've mentioned it before on the show. It's 29 holdings. Um, I'm basically at my max in terms of holdings. I have kept DocuSign. I have kept Lululemon, which I know others on the show. Uh, I know Pete owns Lululemon. I have kept those growth names. I've stayed with them. I've stayed with Eli Lilly, which is experiencing uh, a lot of growth momentum behind it as well. So Temptation was there to do a little bit of reallocation towards last week, which was a very popularized concept. But no, uh, I'm happy that I stayed with those growth names. I believe technically Tom Lee is going to be right that the market is going to elevate above those February 19th highs at 33.93. And I think it's going to be predicated on better economic news, strong consumer and retail earnings in the coming week and a half. Brian, you have some interesting moves you've been making um, on the consumer retail front. You sold Ralph Lauren. You sold Las Vegas Sands. You sold Vail Resorts. You sold Square. You sold Lending Tree. What does that What does that say? Uh, is Is there anything to glean from that in a in a broader sense? Or are they all individual stories for the reason you sold those? Well, I think the first three, when you have like the Ralph Lauren, Las Vegas Sands, especially those two, I really bought those as to your point, like an epicenter name. And this is where I think these, some of these value names can be value traps. You know, I bought Ralph Lauren around $80. I sold it in the low 70s. And I think, you know, this morning it was around $70. And so it's like if you buy these names early and they sell off, you're going to be in a hole. And so I felt like I could spend that risk budget better. And so, you know, I bought Zimmer. I bought FlowServe. And so for those names, I wanted to reposition. As it, as it relates to Lending Tree, I think that's an interesting name because that all year had really been more of a like a technology darling with like a square and a PayPal. But really about a month ago, technically it just started falling off a cliff. And you know, I sold it in the 350s. I think it's around 309. 
And so I think that's a good example of with these momentum type stocks, if they do start breaking down, because the valuations, these are all expensive names, I do think you have to be prepared to step to the side and recalibrate with other names. Yeah, we're also learning about a new position in Square as of the latest 13F filing from Appaloosa's David Tepper. I want to have a conversation, though, guys, about, and, and Bryn sort of teed this up perfectly for us, value versus value trap, and center in on Pete the financials for that conversation because the other what I think is really interesting is is from the 13 F's from Berkshire they trimmed the largest stake yeah. in Wells they cut JP Morgan by 62 percent they reduced stakes in PNC and, and BNY Mellon and they completely exit the stake in Goldman Sachs and by the way we talked about the 13 day buying binge from Buffett too in Bank of America so they're not out of all of the financials but they're out of a lot or at least trimming a bunch. What's the statement yeah. there about that trade in and of itself? Perceived value or value trap? It, yeah, it, it's really interesting. And, and, and I, I think it's really important to talk about, especially on JP Morgan's a really interesting one because everybody always talks about JP Morgan. It's, you know, the gold standard and all the rest of it. And it's still struggling to, to hold above $100 a share. It popped last week pretty nicely. And today it's been moving right back down towards that number once again. Um, you know, I, I find it really interesting, some of the stocks that he trimmed, but specifically the one he sold with Goldman Sachs. Because Goldman Sachs, when you look through those numbers, Scott, they were pretty extraordinary. Their trading was just outstanding. They had a great earnings report. And yet the stock, after a quick bump to the upside, wasn't able to hold any of those gains and quickly descended back down again towards the 200 level. So um, I'm not really sure exactly about why he exited that one, but... We also do know he put on a huge, he continued to add to that position in Bank of America. And I, I happen to agree with him. I actually own Bank of America for a lot of different reasons, one of which is it trades still below book value as opposed to many of the other names that are trading above the book value. So I think I understand some of the, the, the rationale for, for Mr. Buffett on why he's got the big position in Bank of America. If I had a chance, I'd love to find out exactly what was the thought process behind Goldman Sachs because... I thought they did everything right. I thought that earnings report was absolutely outstanding. I am not in Goldman Sachs right now, but I've certainly been looking Jimmy's. at it. And it does cause me, it, it causes me a little bit of, of uh, hesitation now to, to put a position on in there because he must have seen something that caused them to take the entire position off. All right, Jim, you, you own it. And you were caught by surprise by this move. I was caught by surprise. Now, listen, I don't have the bat phone to uh, St. Warren, so I don't know why he sold it. And I'm, real, I'm not going to do conjecture, but the one thing, and, and Pete just, it may have been the choice of words, I don't think Warren has any insight into non-public information that the rest of us don't. So, you know, maybe he just likes Bank of America more than anything else. Maybe he wants to buy Bank of America and wants to maintain his cash balance overall, and that's why he's selling. There's nothing in Goldman Sachs that says to me this is a time you should sell it, but he can make his own decision. The, the bigger point, though, is, okay, I disagree with that about Goldman Sachs. He's clearly not committing a lot of capital, Warren. You know, yeah, he bought that natural gas pipeline for $8 billion. He's put a couple billion dollars more into Bank of America, but he's sold a ton of things. He is clearly bearish on the stock market and the economy. He's not committing capital. That, to me, is important. Yeah, I mean, but he's got now, you know, these two, Joe, um, I want to say bloated positions. I mean, but Apple obviously is, is huge. He's got a big bet there. And he's got a big bet on Bank of America. 
So he, he has more, I guess, concentrated, at least Berkshire does, more concentrated yeah. um, positions now. I'm just wondering the statement in and of itself about the reduction yeah. in, the, in the banks, mm -hmm. particularly J.P. Morgan. Look, you hardly have anybody come on this program and say anything negative about, uh, about uh, J.P. Morgan, right? Kramer did it recently, and it wasn't negative about the company. It was negative about the stock relative to something like Wells Fargo. Mm -hmm. Now you've got Buffett and Berkshire taking mm -hmm. down their JPM stake, as I said, by some 60-plus yeah. percent. Um, has the tide turned for J.P. Morgan as a stock? Well, I don't know. I mean, Scott, you know that I own the stock, and I'm staying with it, and I own Morgan Stanley, and I own Goldman Sachs as well, but isn't the actions of Mr. Buffett and his entity kind of indicative of the market overall? You use the word concentrated, and that's a great word to use because as it relates to portfolios, aren't we all becoming more concentrated in positions like Apple? There, there, there is not the broad-based dispersion. There's not the universal opportunity inequities that we experienced in prior years. It's very isolated. So um, I, I think he's reflective of the overall investment community. I obviously disagree as it relates to JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. I'm staying with those positions for specific reasons to each of those businesses. I'm not going to reiterate. Pete mentioned before one of the reasons as it relates to Goldman Sachs. Um, I'm going to maintain those positions. But listen, Scott, he's not the first person to come out and present a bearish view on the financials. There have been many others. A lot of large institutional investors have done that for the better part of the last five to ten years. And you know what? They've been right to do it. Yeah, but, but this is somebody who was a, a, a big believer in that space. And, you know, just like we had this conversation about the airlines, when he became a believer, it sort of validated, right? It was like the good housekeeping seal of approval. If if Berkshire's That's in there, it must be validating this trade. And now that they've significantly trimmed their stakes in the banks, whether it's Buffett-induced or the people who manage those, those portfolios, it still is a statement in and of itself, Bryn, that Berkshire is all but exiting most of the significance of their bank holdings, except for Bank of America. Well, I think when Jay Powell says we're not going to think about thinking about raising rates for two years, and a lot of these banks, net interest margins are really important. The rate market is really important. I would say it's probably the least important for Goldman, so that is you know, peculiar. I agree that, that he sold that. But when you look out where what matters to a lot of these big financials, it's interest rates, and they're going to be low for a long period of time. And so when he's got that capital to spend, um, he's probably just, you know, once again, raising cash. I do think you'll get a pop in the financials once we get more clarity around the vaccine. That being said, once you get that pop, I think they're going to underperform so many other sectors of the market that have more optionality to grow and aren't so interest rate sensitive. So I thought it was a good move, and I think it makes sense in the rate narrative. Yeah, you do own Goldman uh, as well. It's worth, uh, it's worth noting that, too. All right, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk about this mystery chart. It's down more than 20% this year. There it is. However, there's a new bullish call on the street today saying it is a no-brainer buy. One of our investment committee members has been telling you that for a long time. Is he right? We'll unveil the name and debate it in our call of the day, plus Walmart, Home Depot, Target, and Lowe's all reporting earnings this week. We'll get you set ahead of the numbers when we come back in just two minutes.
What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Let's get the headlines now with Sue Herrera. Hi, Sue. Good to see you, Scott. Here's what's happening at this hour, everybody. A warning for Russia from the Trump administration. A senior official tells Reuters Moscow must respect the sovereignty of neighboring Belarus and the right of its people to free elections. Hundreds of thousands of people there are taking to the streets in demonstrations against what many are calling the rigged re-election of its authoritarian leader. New York State will allow gyms to reopen as soon as a week from today at 33% capacity, and masks will be mandatory. Less than 1% of COVID tests in New York are now coming back positive. And Jason Wright is the first black team president in NFL history. He will be leading the business operations of the Washington football team. Wright says finding a new name will be a long process with a lot of input from fans. You are up to date, Scott. I'll send it back to you. All right. Appreciate that, Sue. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Mention that bullish call on our mystery chart. It is General Motors. Deutsche Bank adding the company to its catalyst call buy list. They say it's, quote, a no-brainer. It's our call of the day. Jim said it's a no-brainer for a lot of months. Now, finally, they're catching up to you, Jim. (laughs) I like the way you phrase that, Scott. You know, the no-brainer part is really what GM itself should do. And this is what the report is saying, is spin out the electric vehicle division. Um, you know, there, the, GM is laboring as, an, as a fossil fuel-dominated auto manufacturer. It's got this electric vehicle division that if it spun it out, look, if it were, if it were valued like Nikola, it'd be like a $20 billion company. And the difference is they actually have products that are selling right now. So if you stripped that out, if you stripped out the autonomous vehicle uh, division, which is Cruise, those two divisions alone would be worth the market cap of the stock today. So we've done this analysis many times. You know, the problem is you actually have to have GM do it. And I hope at this point, you know, years into this, that GM is finally, it sounds like maybe, maybe they're finally getting the message that they need to split up the company. When they do, this is 50% higher. Wow, 50%. That's a big call. And the fact that, it's look. A sum look. Of, it's a sum of the parts. And, I, you know, I'm sorry, Scott, because no, I don't no want to just throw it out there and then say, oh, what's he talking about? The two divisions, just the electrical ve- electric vehicle and cruise, could each be worth about $19 billion. That's what the market cap is today. You're left with the so-called stub piece, which is the sedans. It's the pickup trucks, the pickup trucks, the pickup trucks. That's easily worth $20 billion. That's where I get that from. The market likes what you're saying. Um, And look, Steve Weiss even listened to you, so that says something, because he had finally bought the stock, too, (laughs) after debating you on it for the longest period of time. Uh, He bought GM on July 15th, so we'll see where that goes. Jim, thank you for that. Meantime, the biggest retail names are getting ready to report earnings this week. Rahel Solomon back with us today to track those for us. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Scott. Yes, and all of these names are hitting all-time highs today. Let's start with Walmart and Home Depot. They report tomorrow. There was an interesting piece from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, Scott, noting that foot traffic, by some estimates, in Home Depot was up at least 35% since April, and that in more than half the state's foot traffic actually doubled versus last year. 
Then on Wednesday, we have Target and Lowe's. Now, Best Buy doesn't actually report until next Tuesday, but Telsey raising its price target to 120 bucks from 105 today and also maintaining an outperform. So analysts expect strong sales growth and comps three times current expectations. Remember, Scott, last month that Best Buy said that it saw that e-commerce growth of 255 percent in the second quarter through July 18th. Well, since then, at least 15 analysts have raised their target price on the stock, and it's blown past many of those targets. You can see it's now trading about 10 bucks higher than the average target of 100 bucks and 44 cents. The stock is also up about 26 percent on the year and almost 70 percent from a year ago, Scott. Wow. Rahel, thank you. And Joe, all of that says what, what Rahel just delivered to us. Analysts keep raising the bar. And the market keeps raising the bar, too. The, the question is, can these stocks live up to what is now higher expectations as a result of the moves? Well, you know, the, the challenge with Best Buy was in the wake of earnings, staying with Best Buy, uh, which would appear to be at a rich valuation. And I give that example because I think that's what's going to occur here with Home Depot. I stayed with Best Buy. I'm going to be staying with Home Depot. Home Depot clearly checking all the boxes as it relates to the acceleration of trends that have pulled forward because of the uh, pandemic. But I also think specific to Home Depot, let's not forget the importance that this company has right now as it relates to ESG investing. If you look at all the ESG funds, it is Home Depot that is risely quickly in terms of their initiative. So it's the reason why I'm staying with it. Um, I would welcome a pullback to maybe even add to the position. And I think that it aligns itself with the overall theory that the do-it-yourself, the consumer, the acceleration forward uh, of a lot of these trends benefits the Best Buys, the Home Depots, the Walmarts, and the Targets. So, Pete, I know you like Target, right? Everybody knows that. But they report this week. What's the, what's the most important thing that you're going to be looking for within that report? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, last quarter we already know those numbers were absolutely extraordinary, but it was the digital that really stood out, right? Because we were in the midst of the pandemic and we were going through all of this and the essentials and everything else. So what I'd be looking for now, Scott, would be, have they been able to take those new customers, and it's a huge number that are on the app, there's a huge number that are going to Target.com and all the rest, are they able to convert those customers into folks that are willing to go to other parts of the store, the parts that have margin? And I think they can. If you go to the home division or some of the areas of the, the kitchen appliances, that's where the true margins are for Target. And we know about earlier, it was really it was going for the essentials. It was the groceries, it was the toilet paper, it was the paper towels, the disinfectants, all of that. That's not where the margin is. So now I think Target can really shine. If they were able to convert that I think we're going to see margins that are going to be pretty extraordinary. Now, they've got to come through, but I think that the conversion process was already there. And I think if it was as sticky as, I, as it feels like when I go walking through these stores, because I do this boots on the ground all the time, man. I go to every one of these stores multiple times in a day, and I like to check it out just to see what's going on. And I can tell you, the foot traffic has been extraordinary at Home Depot, at Walmart, at Target, at a lot of these names, except for a couple others like a TJ Maxx, I, it looks to me like they're getting a little bit slower. So, you know, that's just a, a quick analysis of walking around, checking what's going on and looking in the parking lots and all the rest of it. But I think margin will be the key for Target. Yeah, the channel checks are welcome, Pete. We appreciate the update there. Pete <laughs> Najarian getting around town out in Minneapolis for us. All right, up next, gold mining stocks on pace for their best day in about four months. Speaking of Mr. Buffett, his big move into Barrick, you can see it up 11 and a third percent. But Newmont, Freeport, Alamos all on the rise today. We'll talk about that coming up first, though. Let's show you the S&P sectors. 
said S&P is uh, just a few points away from that closing high again. 33, 83, and 76. We're back after this. You can always watch and listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. See you in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. The gold miners are rallying today. Let's get to Bob Pisani with the trades in ETF Edge Force. No, no big surprise, Bob, as to why they're on the move. <laughs> Yeah, I think Mr. Buffett uh, and Berkshire surprised some people here. So the gold miners are really spiking on heavy volume today. Billionaire investor Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway revealed a big bet on Barrick Gold. Van Eck Vector's gold miners ETF, that's GDX, up 6%, on pace for its best day in almost four months. We've got two of the best to comment on what's going on here. Dave Nodick is the CIO and Director of Research at ETF Trends. Chris Hempstead is Director of Institutional Business Development at Index IQ. And Dave... Uh, a little bit of a surprise here that uh, Berkshire's investment uh, in Barrick, given Mr. Buffett's comments in the past that gold is essentially an unproductive asset. Is this the start of something new? Why, are you seeing investors suddenly starting to get religion about gold and, and gold stocks in particular? Well, gold for sure, for sure has been an ETF story. We've had 734 tons go into gold ETFs just in the first half of this year, which makes the first half of this year better than 2009, which was their annual record. So it's entirely an ETF story. It's worth pointing out that global gold demand in terms of retail, coins, bars, jewelry is actually all really down. So this is being a market being driven entirely by the ETF buyer. And at the same time, we have supply 15 percent off because we've had disruptions in mining. So we're starting to see more activity in the miners and the junior gold miners as they sort of jockey for position and investors continue to look at gold as a safe haven asset. I particularly like junior gold miners here. I like that idea of having the opportunity to have your company get bought. Uh, so not necessarily the same move that Berkshire's making, but I think we're going to see more activity in the space. Chris, um, gold is often pushed as a diversification play because it's often uncorrelated uh, with stocks and bonds. What should investors know about investing in gold stocks versus investing in gold? And is there some difference between the junior gold miners and the major gold miners, as Dave was chatting about? 
I mean, the major difference is, is that when you're investing in the stocks, you're investing with management and you're investing, you're investing with a company that has production facilities. So there are certain risks that go along with, with investing in a company, um, which, which is oftentimes, you know, succeeded uh, successful by the, by the performance of its managers, whereas physical gold is really just held in a vault. Um, so the ETFs that hold the gold, um, you know, have it certified and it's protected in the vault. So, you know, depending on why you're buying it, if it's if you're something, maybe Warren Buffett saw value in the stocks, uh, maybe they've underperformed uh, historically, but now they're really they've outperformed recently relative to physical gold. Um, maybe now's the time to be buying. Um, I'm not sure I, I agree with the initial, you know, chase the Warren Buffett trade immediately. I think there's plenty of time to get in. Um, but it's, it's the major difference is yeah. it's physical gold okay. sits in a vault and physical uh, gold stock companies are run by managers. So. Yeah, Dave, the yeah, largest better. gold ETF, GLD, is now the sixth largest ETF in the United States. That's astonishing. It's got $80 billion in assets. Much of it just happened in the last six months. Is, is there further room for this? Could this be a $100 billion ETF by the end of the year? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, GLD has that sort of name brand recognition because of the ticker, the same way we talk about SPY being the S&P 500, a lot of people look at GLD as being gold. Uh, and, and I don't really see any reason to expect this to go in any other direction. You know, gold still has that safe haven quality people are looking at. We all know we've got a, a tumultuous six months ahead of us. I don't really see anything getting in the way of gold here. Yeah. And yet Mr. Buffett has consistently complained that gold is not a productive asset. It doesn't give you earnings. It doesn't give you dividends. And unlike, uh, of course, bonds, it doesn't throw off any interest payments. And yet you see the interest in that. We've got to let it go there, guys. Coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time, more on gold ETFs and online retail stocks. They're up 80 percent. Some of these ETFs in the retail category this year. We'll show you what the difference between them is and how to invest in all of them. Right now, etfedge.cnbc.com, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Scott, back to you. All right, look forward to it. Thanks, Bob. Pete has unusual activity in the options market. We'll find out his latest trades coming up. We're back in just 30 seconds. Unusual activity time. Pete, what do you have for us today? Starting with this one right in front of us, NET. Yep, Cloudflare. This is an interesting one, Scott. This is a stock that was a $15 stock back at the lows in March and actually it pushed all the way up to 45. Now it pulled back and earlier today the stock was trading just below $39 a share and we were seeing some pretty nice active buying in there. They were buying the August 42 calls and they bought about 7,000 of those. They were only going for between 25 and 50 cents at the time. Stock's a little bit higher now, probably moving a little bit uh, as they're seeing some of this activity pick up even further. But I, I, I like these. It's going to be very, very short term. These expire Friday, so be very careful and understand that this is a very short term trade. Secondly, I've got UNP. So last week on Friday, I used this as my final trade with you guys. And it was because I'd seen some unusual option activity. It's hit four times since last Tuesday. Today, they're going after September and they bought 2,000 of the September 195 calls. They hedged against those as well. So they were buying those calls and selling a further out or a further up strike call just to give that pri prices down a little bit. But it's still expecting to see a, a pretty nice move to the upside in a fairly short period of time. I like this one. Stock was trading underneath 195. Any push up above that and start to get close to 200 and these options should start to fly. All right, we'll follow that. Pete, thank you. Coming up, Nat, gas prices are pulling back after hitting the highest level of the year earlier today and a 35% move in just a month. We'll find out how the futures traders are playing that straight ahead on the half.
Missed the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast, market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app and subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. It's time for the futures outlook. Natural gas hitting its highest level of the year today before pulling back and now uh, into negative territory. As you see, it's still up nearly 36 percent in the past month. A heat wave making its way through parts of the country. For more on that move and what could be next, let's bring in Jeff Kilberg of KKM Financial. So you you see the move um, and the reversal. Now what? Well, Scotty, I think you want to be a seller here. It's a one-two punch. You actually look at the surge last Friday. We saw that surge. It was mostly short covering, but certainly there's that heat component. We see in California, they're actually having rolling blackouts due to that heat. So I think this is all part of the puzzle why we're at three-month highs. But I want to be a seller here at $2.40. I'm looking for a retest of $2.25, but I want to be mindful that May high up around $2.50. I want to be stopped out of this trade at $2.48. But I think you have to be really considerate. Whenever you see a move like this, Scotty, there's a lot of momentum. We're certainly seeing the momentum wane in natural gas right now, but this is high volume. When you see this type of high volume move, typically you have the opportunity to be really nimble. I think the trajectory could be higher if the weather persists for the next couple of weeks, but short term, this is the future's outlook. All right. Hey, Joe Terranova, do you have a thought on, on that gas since we've got Kilberg here? I do. I appreciate that, Scott. Thank you. Um, listen, the equities that I have purchased in the last four weeks, which would be EQT, CNX, related to natural gas, they could endure the pullback that Jeff is talking about. Look at EQT today. It trended significantly lower based on the reversal in natural gas. And right now it's basically a nickel unchanged on the day. So uh, I think EQT and CNX are longer term plays. The supply demand imbalance is going to narrow going into 2021, and that's going to awaken the natural gas sleeping giant. All right. Yeah, Good. Judge, real quick, hit the nail on the head. Joe's absolutely right. It's the production, that curber production, that's going to keep prices elevated. So Joe's spot on once yeah. again. Good stuff. Jeff, we'll see you soon. That's Jeff Kilberg for us. Joe as well. Thank you for that. Straight ahead, your final trades. And tomorrow on The Half, don't miss our interview with one of the most exciting golfers on the PGA Tour. Justin Thomas is going to join us. JT will be here. He's ranked number one, by the way, in the FedEx Cup rankings, number two in the world. We're back after this. Welcome back. We've been on S&P record watch as the uh, index has been trading above its all-time closing high set back in February. It's, it's right about there now. 3386.15 is the level it needs to close above. Now, this is the third day or so that we've gotten right there or above that actual level, but we haven't been able to close there. So we're going to continue to watch that. 3386.15 is where the S&P 500 needs to close above to get that new closing high. Speaking of things on the move, we want to touch once again on General Motors. As I look at those shares up now better than 6%, there was the big call today, Jim Labenthal from Deutsche Bank. They called it a no-brainer. You've talked about the stock a lot. And frankly, when you were talking about the stock in context of that note, we did see shares of General Motors continue to move higher. You were talking about some sort of you know, strategic moves that the company may want to make. Talk about that quickly again for our viewers who might have missed that as we watch those shares, pretty much the highs of the day, about six and a half percent. 
Yeah, that's the no-brainer part of this, is there's just some corporate restructuring to be done here. Split the company up, and you'll have a nice part of the company that starts trading at multiples, well, heck, not even multiples that you need to compare to Tesla or Nikolai in order to have this thing be a sum of the parts worth $60 billion as opposed to the $40 billion market cap right now. So hat tip to uh, Deutsche Bank, but now what we really need to see is Mary Barra and the rest of the executive team execute on this. There's been some talk that they are far more alive to this than they have been in the past. Yeah. It's an easy way to unlock that. It's a big day for, uh, for General Motors. Um, up 7% in, a, in one day. You, you don't normally see it, uh, that sort of move, but it's up uh, 7%, as we said, just shy of $30 now for shares of GM. Jim, thank you. Let's do final trades if we could. Bryn, I'm going to begin with you. Why don't you start us off today? Um, yeah, my final trade for today is Teladoc. Um, you know, Teladoc earlier, earlier this month or last month announced they were going to merge with Livongo. The market did not like it. It was in the 250s. Today it's in the 190s. Um, you know, Teladoc and Livongo, that merger will be accretive by about $500 million in revenues. In addition, they're still on track, management said, to grow 30 to 40% mm-hmm. per year for the next few years. So disruptive technology, disruptive company, and a good time to buy a, a growth company that the market doesn't like right now. All right, good stuff. It's nice to see you as well today. Pete, what's your final trade? I'm going to give you electric vehicles. I'm going to give you NEO. I see a lot of option activity there to the upside, and I like it. I bought in. All right, Joey, what do you got? Ollie's Bargain. I gave it to you last week, O-L-L-I. I think okay. it goes above 110, which was the previous high. All right, Jim, quick a name. Cleveland Cliffs rallying with industrial metals. Good stuff. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.